We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We are in a short mini-series in the season of Advent that is part of a larger series on the book of Leviticus. And this mini-series, these four weeks of Advent, is Be Holy. That's the title of it. And the idea here is that in Advent, we're remembering that Jesus is coming back to make all things new. And that when he comes back, we will meet him. Uh, We will meet him face to face. And we will give an account of our lives. And we want to be ready for that day when we meet him. And so the idea is that we want to grow in holiness, that we might be more and more ready to see Jesus when he returns. So we looked at a general introduction to holiness in the first Sunday in Advent, and then last week we were looking at be holy in worship around matters of giving to God our soul worship, our exclusive fidelity to him as our covenant king. And today as we follow the text of Leviticus, we're going to come to the topic of sex. Um, And my aim as we take up this topic this morning is to speak plainly and compassionately. That's my aim. I want to start by saying a few things by way of introduction. First, if holiness is about nonconformity to the world around us, remember in chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, they were told not to conform to the nation of Egypt, where they had come from, or to the nations of Canaan, to which they were headed, but rather to be conformed or to, to be conformed to God's image in ways, to follow his statutes. So it's nonconformity to the culture around you, conformity to God. Be holy as I am holy. So what does this mean? It means that when we come to the topic of sex, we should expect to be challenged by God. And that's exactly what we find here in Leviticus 18, that we are challenged in this. There is probably no dimension of the biblical witness and of God's truth that is more in tension with our culture today than this topic. It's a live battleground. Second introductory comment. When we um, talk about sex, we are talking about something very powerful and often very painful within all of our lives. Many of us live with real shame about perhaps things that we have done or seen related to sex and sexuality, maybe secret shame. Many of us may be in the grips and the bonds of the multi-billion dollar industry of pornography that is rampant across our world, to which access has never been easier. Some of us may live with the reality, and this may be too many of us, I know the statistics on this are so heartbreaking, honestly, with the reality of of gut-wrenching pain over the fact of sexual abuse that has been done to us in our lives. And it may be that that's continues to be a real difficult thing for us to overcome and process in our lives. And I'm terribly sorry for that, if that is your story. All of us do deeply live within a culture that is shaped by a kind of pornographic approach to these things, to the human body, and it disorients us, and it impacts us. It's the air we breathe, it's the water that we're swimming in, and none of us is immune to this. We are inundated with these things day in and day out. Our youth have been sexualized, music, entertainment, social media, even our news feeds have been hyper-sexualized, and we experience this on a daily basis. So as we come to this topic, we're coming to something that every single one of us wrestles with, has been impacted by, 
probably has a lack of resolution about. And yet God's word speaks to these things in a powerful way. Uh, a third introductory comment as we, we approach the topic, I, I want to say uh, not only are we affected by it, but I want to recognize that every single one of us here is sexually broken in some way. Every single one of us here is sexually disoriented in some way. It's a dimension of the fall. It's a dimension of sin entering into the world. And it's a dimension of that that we cannot escape. And, and yet, having said that, those of you who are in Christ this morning, who have been won over by the love of God in Jesus, you have been bought with a price, Paul says. And you're called, your vocation is to glorify God with your body. Your body is no longer meant for sexual immorality. But it's meant for the Lord, and it's meant to be used to glorify the Lord himself, who cares deeply about you and your life and your flourishing. That requires, and honestly, to do this well, that requires community and relationships and trust and support. And we long as a church family to provide that for every single person in this church who calls this church home. We want to be a community where we can be honest and find support and learn to encourage and help one another grow in holiness in the area of sexuality in our lives. We do actually have a couple of men's groups that meet to specifically address these realities. And if that's something you'd be interested in, please reach out to one of the ministerial staff. We would love to point you in the right direction. Fourth and finally, in terms of just an introductory comment, to those of you who are here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, you're still considering the claims of Christianity. Maybe it took a lot of effort just to come into a church, and now you think, I can't believe I'm hearing a sermon on sex. <laughs> but I, I want to say to you, if that is you this morning, first of all, really, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, and I hope that there's something for you in this. But I want to be, be careful. I want to caution you and say the first thing that you need to wrestle with, if this is you, is not biblical sexual ethics, which are in tension with the culture around us. But you need to wrestle with the claims of the Lord Jesus himself. Was he truly the son of God? Why did he die on a cross at the hands of the Romans? Did he in fact rise from the dead as we, the Christians in this room, proclaim that he did? And does he in fact call you into a genuine life that, in which sin is taken away and you are brought into fullness of life? Those are the things that we want you to wrestle with and deal with and reflect on more than reflecting on uh, biblical sexual ethics. Now, having said that, when you come to Jesus, Jesus will call for you to surrender all of your life to him, including your sexual life. So I don't want to be unclear about that. But that's a matter, in a sense, downstream from the original matter of dealing with who is Jesus. And for those of you who have wrestled with who Jesus is and you've decided he is, in fact, Lord, and you've surrendered your life to him, then you know that as we begin to know him and grow in relationship with him, it becomes more and more of our joy. Not, not that it's easy, but of our joy to begin to relinquish and surrender every dimension of our life to him and to his will. Because we, we've come to know and trust that he cares deeply for us and that his way is the way of life. So, uh, with that said, our plan today, can you all hear me? This fell off. I think we're back on. I was going to give you our plan. So the plan this morning is uh, now I can hear you hear you hearing me as well. 
Uh, the plan is to first think about the way God's way related to sex versus our culture's way. So that's the first thing, just to set up a canopy that, to kind of understand what's going on. Then to look at Leviticus 18 and also in Leviticus 18 to come in and look at particularly the prohibition against homosexual sexual activity. Um, and then we'll conclude with some implications about this for our lives today. So that's the, the, the basic outlay and plan. So first, God's way versus our way. You know, at several points in this series on Leviticus, we've actually come to see that Leviticus is restoring the conditions that existed at Eden. And that the tabernacle, in many ways, is a renewed Eden in which God is present with his people, particularly on the Day of Atonement when the high priest, as a second Adam, comes into the very Holy of Holies. But if that's the case, then it's fair for us to, to, to suggest that the particular prohibitions in Leviticus 18 on sexual relations and sexual activity are, are just more particular examples of a general defense and embrace of the biblical sexual ethic that God reveals in Genesis 1 and 2. So I want to look at that ethic first before we come to Leviticus 18. So there, God creates Humanity, male and female, with bodies that have complementarity and called us into a new kinship bond with one another through the sexual relationship of marriage. Sex is about a holistic union of two people who are similar, yes, but different. The woman was created for the man in Genesis 2 as an, a helper like opposite him. And that similarity and difference are important. So they were created for this man and woman, one flesh union that we know as marriage, referred to in Genesis 2, 24. And within that self-giving union, sex has a few purposes. A unitive purpose. It expresses and deepens the complete whole person giving over of two people in the covenant of marriage. It is, if you will, a covenant renewing ceremony. Something that expresses and reinforces the one flesh, whole life bond of a man and a woman in marriage. Sex also has a procreative purpose. That is, when man and woman come together as one flesh, the result of that, by God's design, is the procreation of little image bearers who would be raised and nurtured under the stability of that married relationship of mother and father and go into the world to expand the work of God's kingdom and to take his image into the realm that God has created. And sex also has a sacramental purpose, by which I mean that this whole life union of two different persons, of husband and wife coming together, reflects the ultimate love and coming together of Christ and his church of creator and creation. And within this purpose, within the lifelong covenantal union that is marriage, and these three, the, the unitive, the procreative, and the sacramental purpose of sex, the Bible actually deeply affirms sex as a good gift that God has given to men and women in the context of marriage that actually brings pleasure to them. You can see this in Proverbs 5 or in the Song of Solomon. And the Bible celebrates God's creational gift of sex within this context. Sex is beautiful, it is good, and it is, interestingly, it is oriented outside of ourselves. So in the unitive function, it's oriented to the spouse as an act of self-giving to that person. 
In the procreative function, it's oriented to children, which in some ways means that the most intimate act of a married couple is actually oriented to the public world around us because our children will go into that world and build the culture and society around us. And it is in that sacramental purpose oriented to God in the sense that what a husband and wife do in sex together reflects something deep about God's creational design and his redemptive heart for his world. It is oriented outside of ourselves. So that's a very quick version of a biblical sexual ethic. But our culture, and you don't need me to tell you this, ridicules and rejects this vision of sex. My question is this. Is what the culture has put in its place actually working? We've embraced a notion of freedom as a culture that suggests that we are truly free when we can express our autonomy through our sexual desires. So the ability to do what we want with our bodies and our sexual desires has become paradigmatic of the notion of individual freedom. In this view, it seems that there are only three rules around sex, and Dale Cuny points these out in his 2009 book, Sex in the Eye World. The first is one may not criticize someone else's life choices or behaviors. The second is one may not behave in a manner that coerces or causes harm to others. And the third is that one may not engage in sexual relationship with someone without his or her consent. In this view, uh, we are sexually liberated to pursue whatever we desire, and this is foundational to our identity. But is it working? Let me give you three comments on this dominant cultural position, three of the undercurrents that this position communicates, teaches, and instructs us in as members of our culture. The first undercurrent is that actually you can't flourish as a human being without engaging and experiencing, engaging in and experiencing sexual activity. Sex is seen as integral to fulfillment, and in fact, in today's culture, happiness and fulfillment seem to, in some ways, be only available or attainable to those who achieve sex according to their desires, whatever those desires may be. In his excellent book, in, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, I think it was published in 2018, Carl Truman observes that we all instinctively know that the movie entitled 40-Year-Old Virgin is a comedy just by the fact of the title. It is portrayed as laughable or tragic even that someone could get to that stage of life and not have experienced what is genuine life, which is sexual activity. But I wonder, can sex really bear this burden that we place upon it? The burden of our identity and our freedom? Can it be the genuine fulfillment of our, our hearts and our longings? And I think the ongoing pain that we see around us in our culture and even within us suggests that this is in fact too much of a burden for sex to bear. The second uh, just undercurrent is to suggest that sex in this cultural dominant view has been disenchanted. Uh, and what I mean by this, I'm taking from Louise Perry, a, a British feminist who wrote a book this year called The, Co the, the Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And, she said that this is the idea that sex is nothing more than a leisure activity invested with meaning only if the participants choose to give it meaning. And she says that this disenchantment of the sexual act uh, was inevitable because if it was enchanted, if it was something more than just sex, then there would, become, there would be barriers and boundaries put around it because it was something unique and special. So it, in a way, she says, it had to be sort of disenchanted so that, that it could be commodified and sold. And she says in her critique 
of this, not particularly coming from a Christian perspective, she says that the cost of this disenchantment of sex falls disproportionately in our culture upon young women. She writes, hookup culture demands that women suppress their natural instincts, that sex is connected to emotional and relational realities. In order to match male sexuality and thus meet the male demand for no strings attached sex, some women, she says, are quite happy to do this, but most women find it unpleasant or even distressing. Thus, hookup culture is a solution to the sexuality mismatch that benefits some men at the expense of most women. That doesn't strike me as a picture of flourishing. A third undercurrent is having been reduced to a leisure activity, sex has become largely a self-centered quest for bodily pleasure in which we use others for our own satisf satisfaction. That is the logic, by the way, of pornography and the whole industry around it. It is the logic of the hookup culture and of hookup apps. And it is the logic of the culture in which sex sells and sells and sells. People in this cultural dominant paradigm of sex, whether in the flesh or on the screen, are become a means to serving one's self-serving ends of sexual pleasure. And what this, in the end, actually does, instead of dignifies as free agents who can be autonomous and express individuals uniquely as we are, is it debases the image of God by making us not ends to be dealt with respectfully, but means to self-appointed ends. Mona Charon, a political commentator, writes this. She says, porn encourages immorality because it treats people as means, not ends, which is exactly what casual sex does. Porn is, in a sense, the logical endpoint of the sexual revolution because it treats people, uh, <clears throat> because it completes the separation of sex from love and relationships. Sexual release is commodified, packaged, and sold. The right to pleasure may be assured 24-7, but it carries with it the debasement of human beings. Is that a cost that we really want to pay? My point is this, that the culture's dominant paradigm around sex doesn't exactly deliver. It promises freedom and authenticity, identity and fulfillment, and so many buy into the, the compelling nature of this promise within this narrative, but it's not delivering. And I believe wholeheartedly that according to the Word of God, the church needs to speak with clarity and compassion and courage about this issue in our world of deep confusion, especially for the sake of our youth. A few years ago, I heard some teaching from Glenn Harrison, an English psychologist who is a Christian who's written on this topic, and he was talking about the dominant narrative in our culture around identity and sex, and he calls it a narrative that is bankrupt. And this is what he said, with compassion in his heart about his desire to speak up and to speak up of Jesus. Quote, I refuse to leave our young people dangling in the wind on an endless treadmill of who am I today? Who am I today? To all of you here who are teenagers, a couple of you belong to my family, please hear me. The culture is offering you a very compelling narrative. A compelling narrative of how to be free and how to be you, and how to find your true identity and freedom. And it's bundling those goods with sexual desire. And it's all around you, but I want you to know that it can't deliver. 
And these very goods of freedom, authenticity, and identity are the very things to which, which you are granted and given under the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, under the one beautiful and true narrative of the world from creation to new creation. And as you're invited into that, you can find what the culture is selling you in a counterfeit way, in a deep and robust sense. Sure, it doesn't make you popular right now. But it is the invitation that Jesus gives us to come to genuine life. And I'm not just speaking to teenagers, although I am, but I'm speaking to all of us. We should not be ashamed of what God has revealed to us about the gift of sex and walking in that and pursuing holiness in relation to sexuality because God gives it to us because he loves us deeply. And he's seeking to protect that which he has given as good, that it might be used in our lives for beauty and goodness and not for brokenness and heartache. So with that, let's turn to Leviticus 18. And I want you to understand uh, that God deeply cares, obviously, about the sexual life of his people. And he longs for them to live a distinctive life sexually. And that was true then and it's true now. These prohibitions that we are going to look at in Leviticus 18 are given because God deeply desires our best, our life. And so we may come to them, particularly out of our cultural context, with our fists up, ready to resist. I want to encourage you to put your gloves down and to have an open heart and open, uh, openness to the Lord himself as we engage these things. So verse 6 of chapter 18. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. This introduces the verses that go from verse 6 all the way to verse 17. And these are verses that deal broadly with the topic of what we would call incest. This phrase, uncover nakedness, is a euphemism best understood as don't commit a shameful act by having sexual relations with these people. So these first prohibitions are prohibitions against incest, those close into the family. And Leviticus, as often is the case, doesn't give us the reason why these prohibitions are there, though one can surmise that these, particularly these regulations around not having sex with those close within the family, were to protect the vulnerable in the community, in particular to protect vulnerable women from male members of their families and extended families to whom they might have been subject to unwanted advances. So this was a matter of protection of the family. We move then from those prohibitions to a prohibition against polygamy in verse 18. You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Some, there's division in the scholarship on this. Some think that this is a, a specific a prohibition of a specific kind of polygamy, that between two sisters. And others, including my predecessor here, Gordon Hugenberger, argue that this is, in fact, a, pro, a general prohibition against polygamy because in the Hebrew text, that word translated her sister could mean another. And it opens up the door for a more general prohibition. We won't take time to dive into that more right now. In verse 20, there is a prohibition against Adultery uh, against having sexual relations with your neighbor's wife. And in verse 23, there is a prohibition against bestiality as well. These actions, as seen in verse 20, if you look at verse 20, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean or impure with her. Uh, these actions, these sexual actions, lead to moral impurity or uncleanness. 
as opposed to ritual impurity or uncleanness. To walk into ritual impurity was not necessarily a sin for Israel. It was part of the everyday life. And God gave provisions in the sacrificial system for how they could deal with that impurity. To walk intentionally into moral impurity was a very serious offense against the holy sovereign king who dwelt in their midst. And the punishments in chapter 20 around these sexual, uh, the, uh, around breaking these sexual boundaries are severe and suggest that this is in fact a very serious thing to embrace this kind of moral impurity willingly and voluntarily. Here's what's interesting. It's that these pro- prohibitions that I've considered already on incest, polygamy, adultery, and bestiality are still largely affirmed in our sexually licentious culture. These things are still, for the most part, not entirely, but they are still, for the most part, taboo. When we come to verse 22, we come to probably the most challenging text in Leviticus, along with verse 13 of chapter 20, for our cultural moment in terms of sex, because it addresses homosexual activity. And I do want to address this directly, but before proceeding, let me say a few things. I want to acknowledge that when we come to this topic of of homosexuality, this subject, that we are talking about people that we love and respect, people who contribute wonderfully to our lives and our society, and of people who have often suffered much. We all know and love people who are gay. You are our friends. You are our family members. You are our neighbors. And you are people even within this community as well. And if you're here today and you are sexually attracted to people of the same sex, or you're wrestling with the fact that a child or grandchild in your life has identified in this way, I I want you to know that we as a church long to be a place where you can be honest and open about this dimension of your life, and where you can find support and compassion and prayer and friendship and grow in faithfulness to Jesus alongside of the rest of us who are sinners all the same. As a whole, The church, capital C, has failed in this regard and has been too quick to condemn and to demonize and to shame people with same-sex desire. And if the church has shamed or hurt or stigmatized or wounded you in the past, and I would say there's probably a pretty strong likelihood that it has, then I at least want to say this morning on behalf of the church that I'm sorry. This is not the way that we are supposed to be as the people of God. I want you to know that we here in this community reject that kind of response to you. And we do not want you to feel alone or to be alone. To be a a supportive and restorative place as the people of God, to be a place that promotes the human flourishing for which God makes us, we need both to speak the truth in love, plainly, boldly, compassionately, and to care for one another as fellow sinners saved by grace. So I'm going to do some of that plain and clear speaking right now. From the Bible's point of view, same-sex sex is one of the effects, among others, of human sexuality being damaged by the fall into sin. And there is no text in the entire biblical witness, Old or New Testament, that views homosexual activity favorably. That includes... This text in front of us, which reads in verse 22, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
And its companion text in verse 13 of chapter 20, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. These words kind of land with a thud, don't they, in our cultural context. But they are verses that are a straightforward prohibition on consensual same-sex sex. We can conclude this is about consensual sex because the punishment in chapter 20 would not apply to both partners if one were a victim. And we can see that principle in Deuteronomy 22. The text calls this activity an abomination, which is something viewed in a strongly negative fashion. One scholar suggests that because the verb built from the same stem, the same root, is often used in parallel with the verb to detest, that this may be easier to understand if translated as a detestable act. This kind of sexual activity is viewed in a strong negative fashion biblically and is prohibited for the people of Israel. All commentators, doesn't matter what they believe about this topic of sexuality, agree that this is what these two verses in Leviticus teach. But does that prohibition apply to the people of God today? That is the question that is debated in our cultural context. I would argue because the prohibition on same-sex sexual activity is vehemently rejected by our culture, that there has been substantial effort put into demonstrating that this prohibition is culture-bound to ancient Israel and no longer applicable in the lives of God's people today. For a more substantial treatment of this subject than we have time for this morning, I would refer you to Jay Sklar, who I've referenced at many points in this series, his 2018 article in the Bulletin of Biblical Research entitled The Prohibitions Against Homosexual Sex in Leviticus 18 and 20. Are they relevant today? Sklar summarizes the two main approaches that are used to sideline this prohibition and its applicability. First, it doesn't apply because Leviticus doesn't apply today. And second, it doesn't apply because the reasons behind the prohibition no longer apply today. And let me just address those briefly. The first argument suggests that because, for example, Leviticus, and many of you have heard this argument, prohibits the wearing of clothing made up of two different kinds of material, and this prohibition is bizarre and certainly no longer relevant to our lives today, that therefore then the prohibition against homosexual sexual activity is also bizarre and no longer relevant. It's a kind of all-or-nothing approach to Leviticus and to Old Testament legislation. That is to say, if there are elements of the Old Testament law that are no longer applicable, then perhaps the whole thing doesn't apply. Of course, the problem with this argument and approach is it's not the way that Jesus reads the Old Testament, and it's not the way that the New Testament authors read the Old Testament as well. Some dimensions of Old Testament law remained and were reaffirmed in the New Covenant people of God, including laws on sexual ethics, while others were set aside because of cultural reasons or set aside by Jesus, like food laws, because those ritual distinctions of ritual purity between the nation of Israel and the nations of this world were no longer applicable in the New Covenant. And so in Mark 7, Jesus sets aside the food laws. Or because these laws, some of them were particularly related to the context of Israel as a theocratic nation. So there are various reasons why certain laws are not reaffirmed in the New Testament. Yet the values behind those laws remain applicable to the New Covenant people. But there are some laws in the, Old, in the Old Testament that are reaffirmed in the New. And these laws around sexual ethics are, in fact, some of those. The second form of sidelining this prohibition that Sklar uh, points to is, is that the rationale behind the prohibition no longer pertains. So proponents of this line of thinking will argue that the reason for the prohibition against homosexual sexual activity uh, was that it led to ritual impurity. 
or that it was actually about illicit acts of worship and a kind of engagement in male prostitution around the tabernacle or the temple, which is something that we read about Israel following the Canaanite example in 1 Kings 14, or that it was about the degrading of the male honor of the passive partner in these relationships, which was an unacceptable thing in an honor-based culture. However, given as we have seen that Leviticus is taking place under the context of the creational design in Genesis 1 and 2, this prohibition is best linked, in terms of rationale, to the creational ideal for sex that God reveals in Genesis 1 and 2, that excludes same-sex sexual activity as well. And this makes sense of the fact that this prohibition is picked up in the New Testament texts themselves. That is to say that the ideal, God's ideal for sex, remains relevant for Christians today, and that ideal includes a prohibition on all sexual activity outside of the covenantal bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. Jesus affirms this ideal in his own ministry and all that it includes. Some argue that Jesus didn't share this Old Testament perspective on same-sex actions because he didn't explicitly address them in his ministry, which is true, But again, Jesus' ministry was taking place in a Jewish context where the understanding about these things was not debated. It would be as if to say that a 21st century scientist didn't believe that the earth was round because she didn't reference that fact in her written work. No, it was part of the assumed background. And then what we see is as the gospel is taken out of that Jewish context and into the Greco-Roman world where homosexual activity was engaged, the subject is addressed and the prohibition reaffirmed. So we see this in Romans chapter 1, paradigmatically, as well as in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 as well. And in Romans 1, in the strongest of these passages, Paul teaches that the exchange of created sexual roles by both men and women for those that are contrary to God's design is a particularly vivid portrayal of the rejection of our Creator. This particular kind of rejection is likely what leads to the use of the word abomination or detestable act in Leviticus 18. God did not make man for man or woman for woman. And when we take and bless as a gift that which God did not give, we are showing evidence of our confusion. Now let me clarify a couple of things at this point, having spoken plainly about what the Bible in this passage in particular teaches. The scriptures do not condone, the the, the scriptures condemn homosexual activity, not the homosexual person, not the person who experiences same-sex desire. This is prohibition on activity, not on people. And we shouldn't miss this because it's a hugely important distinction. The Bible never condemns a person. And it's true that the biblical authors didn't have a category of homosexual that we do today. But the Bible only condemns homosexual practice, not the person, which is to say, you may be attracted to members of the same sex, and you may have experienced this attraction from your earliest memory, as did Ed Shaw or Rachel Gilson or Sam Albury, three authors I would recommend on this topic. But this does not mean that you are any more broken, more sinful, or more in need of grace than anyone else in this room or in the world around us. To all of us, I need to say this. I've only focused in on this prohibition because this is the one prohibition that our culture vehemently rejects. But I want you to understand that on balance, 15 verses in Leviticus 18 deal with heterosexual sin. One verse deals with homosexual activity 
and sin. Note the balance of this. All sexual sin dehumanizes the people of God, all humanity. This includes premarital sex. This includes consuming pornography. This includes masturbation aided by pornography. It includes sex with someone who is not one's spouse, sex with multiple people at the same time, and so on and so forth. All of this activity outside the bounds of that which God has created sex for is a deep rejection of God himself and of the good order that he has placed upon his world and upon our lives out of his love and care for us. So let's remember, as we think about being holy in sex, that at Park Street Church, heterosexual sin is a far bigger issue than homosexual sin. Let's be humbled, every one of us, as we come to these realities and recognize that every single one of us has room for the sanctification and the work of God's Spirit in our lives in new ways as we seek to listen to God's Word together. A third clarification is, how might Jesus have encountered one of us who is deeply sexually broken? And I want to say to you, we have a little incident where Jesus does, in fact, encounter a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. One of the prohibitions, mind you, of Leviticus 18, in a situation of sexual brokenness and disorientation. And what does he do? He does not condemn her. Remember? But he engages her and urges her to go and sin no more. That is, he calls her out of sexual brokenness by extending radical forgiveness and mercy and into a life of flourishing, a life of holiness. Go and sin no more. And that encounter should give us some indication of how Jesus and how we should respond to the people in our lives, to our own lives, people engaged in sexual activity outside of the biblical bounds that God has given it for, whether heterosexual or homosexual, with compassion, without condemnation, but with a call to come out of such activity into the life of holiness, which is by definition a life of flourishing. There is tremendous pressure upon New Covenant believers today to revise the biblical teaching on sex, and particularly the biblical teaching on same-sex activity. There's tremendous pressure to do this in our time, in our day, and in our city in particular. Some have just chosen plain to disagree with the Bible's teaching on this, to move into the category of picking and choosing what we read in the Bible, what we like and what we don't. Although, as I said last week, that's essentially idolatry. It is it is refashioning God in the image of our culture and thereby uh, disabling God's ability to critique us from, without, from outside. Others have taken the option of challenging the plain interpretation of the biblical texts to show how they do not apply today so that we can remain committed to biblical authority but reject this part of its teaching. And there is a growing list of people who are taking this very approach. They sincerely don't want to reject the Bible, but they found that since they can no longer affirm the biblical prohibition on same-sex activity, that there must be another way. And they use very pervasive or persuasive arguments to do so. We don't have time to dig into these in full. I want to mention four of what I think are the most persuasive, just to lay them out there with a slight comeback to all four, but um, this would be for further conversation and dialogue later. One is the cultural distance argument. 
which suggests that the biblical prohibitions on same-sex activity no longer apply in this cultural context because the biblical context did not foresee the kind of monogamous, faithful, lifelong, same-sex sexual unions that we know today in our culture. The challenge with this argument, or the problem of this argument, is that it is grounded on a historical argument that the Apostle Paul, when he reaffirmed the prohibitions of Leviticus in his own writings, was unaware of consensual same-sex sexual activity. The reality is in Greco-Roman culture, they were just as sexually promiscuous and experimental as the 21st century Western culture is today. And there are extant examples of consensual same-sex relationships in the ancient world. So this argument is resting on faulty grounds historically. A second argument is what we call the recategorization argument, which is to say that the church's treatment of same-sex activity is akin to its treatment of questions around uh, segregation, slavery, the roles of women, and divorce and remarriage. The argument goes that in these instances, the church has started out on the wrong side, restrictive and oppressive, and moved into the more inclusive stance. And yet, the church has always been clear in its position and teaching on sexuality. There's always been dissonance within the tradition, and some grossly misinterpreted the biblical text around slavery, but there's never been a univocal voice. So in that sense, it's a very different issue. Then take the example of the issues of divorce and remarriage or of the roles of women. There is much biblical data for the church to wrestle with on these matters that allow room for challenges and differences of opinion and how we're going to work these things out. Whereas the biblical data on this question is univocal and clear, consistent from cover to cover. So it's categorically different and should not be compared to those matters. Third is what I call, and this is the hardest one, it's the experience argument. It is that we know and love people who identify as gay, who also identify as Christians, who love Jesus and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. So this can't be wrong, can it? But come back to this, and I, and I realize this is really challenging. I do. But the comeback on this argument is that we do not allow experience to dictate the teaching of God's word. We just don't. And where the word of God is clear and univocal, we are called as a, ma as a matter of yieldedness and submission to affirm that which it teaches, whatever our experience may dictate to us that is contrary to it. And the fourth argument is what I call the Jesus and love argument, which suggests that embracing a marginalized group of people who have been treated unfairly is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus would do, to which I concur. But I also add, does not Jesus exercise his love for the marginalized by calling them to repentance as well, as he calls those in the inner circles of their culture? Jesus' love is, is not, it is not, cherry-picking in that way. He loves us all so much that as he does to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2, he calls them to repent of their sexual immorality, of the teaching that has led them down this path. And he pleads with them because he loves them. So in conclusion, we are called to be a holy people. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy, and to be holy in our sexual lives as well. To flee sexual immorality, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, of all kinds, and I understand this is not an easy call. 
in this moment in which we live. There is all kinds of internal opposition and all kinds of external resistance. There is our hearts that break for the people that we love. I recognize all of those things are there, but I want to say and want us to remember that this invitation to life from the living God, this invitation into wholeness, this invitation into holiness, in this invitation to becoming a distinct people who are the salt and light of the world, is given to us as well in a highly sexualized culture. But the invitation remains. So I want to close with a couple of exhortations to all of us as we seek, as we wrestle with this, and as we seek to take up this invitation into life. Remember that you are not your sexual desires. Modern discourse that refers to human beings as heterosexuals and homosexuals and bisexuals and so many other labels around sexual desire is reinforcing an equation of identity with sexual desire. That is an equation that we must break underneath the truth of God's word. And it is a short step from that equation to demand that if we are to be fulfilled and to be ourselves, then we must be able to act on whatever desires that we have. Someone wrote in a news article a few years ago, Quote, we own up to actually having sexual appetites and then use them to live happier, more productive lives. Sex is not the enemy, it's the answer. End quote. And that depicts that cultural paradigm. The gods of this age tell us to indulge our desires, that they are inherent in who we are. The God of heaven and earth tells us to denounce our desires, to to repudiate our desires, and to bring them into conformity with his holy character. being. Let's separate our identity from our sexuality. Second, don't be confused. And I I mean this with, with, with passion. I mean it for the teenagers in the room. I do. You are the casualty of this culture, and it is obvious and clear. Do not be confused brothers and sisters, about the beautiful, good, wholesome, life-giving vision for sex that God communicates to us in his biblical word. It is a good and beautiful thing not to be ashamed of, to, to be embraced and lived into. Yeah, it is difficult and hard to know how to embrace and live this out within our own lives and within the, within the church today and within our, with, with our neighbors, but the Bible is so clear about this, so don't be confused. Don't let this confusion diminish your ability to bear faithful witness to Jesus and to live and love in accordance with his truth. There is, I should say, there's no need to broadcast this truth to the world. That's why I spoke to those of you who are not yet believers in Jesus this morning. Nor there is a need for us to impose it upon all of our neighbors, but rather to stay faithful to the word of God. We are not called to make moral proclamations as much as we are called to make gospel invitations, people of God. Don't be confused. Be courageous. If you are wrestling with some manner of illicit sexual desire in your life, be courageous. Be honest about that. Don't be afraid. Seek out others that can come alongside of you and and walk with you in this. Enlist enlist your brothers and sisters in in help. We need each other. We need each other to, to support one another in this. Be courageous. And be loving as you interface with a culture that is deeply confused. And as that confusion has seeped into the body of Christ, into our own families, maybe even into our own hearts. Be loving. Be compassionate. 
love and care for and serve and get to know and befriend and be in relationship those, with those people who are different from you, who are practicing something different from you. We are not called to judge the world, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, but rather, he says, to judge those within the body of Christ. We are called to engage the world with a cross-shaped love that shows them the love and care of Jesus, even as we hold courageously to his words of truth around the issue of sexuality. And finally, I want to say to you, take up your cross. Take up your cross and come to life. Jesus' invitation is a loving one, and it's an invitation to come to fullness of life. He says, take up your cross and follow me. The process to coming to life is a bloody one that requires the death of our old selves, including our sexual selves. So whatever our sexual desires, we're all invited to come alive by renouncing and resisting ungodly and disordered desire in our lives, by by coming into into the life that God gives us in His Son, and to embrace God's design for human life and sexuality as he has communicated it to us clearly through his word. And this will mean something different for each one of us, but it will mean something costly for every one of us. Take up your cross and follow him. There is a wealth of forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ for the sexually broken, of which we are all apart. There's a reservoir of power available to you and to me who find ourselves in Christ, whose name is the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, who's come to indwell his people to empower us to live not in accordance with the flesh and its desires, but accordance with the Spirit and the will of God. Be holy in sex. A hard word to hear in this context, but a loving invitation from a holy God. He calls us into this because he loves you and me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it challenges so many things that we may hold dear. And we pray that by your grace, you would grow each one of us on this path of holiness in our sexual lives as well as in every other area of our life. You are good, Lord. I pray that you would infuse us, your people, with a confidence and courage, with a compassion and a care that would allow us to be the light of the world, a world, Lord, that you love, a world that is so deeply confused. Lord, may we love it as you do. For your glory, honor, and praise.